Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roth. And I'm Rose. And we are really excited today to have some wonderful special guests from our community to talk about mental health and well-being. I would love to introduce to you our three guests. Our first guest we have is Assistant Professor Dr. Tamika Minor from Rutgers University. We're also blessed to have Jennifer Airy, who is a member of the care team at the Rowan Integrated Special Needs Center as a social worker. And we have our very own Oriel Weinberg, who's the Director of Disability Services at Samost Jewish Family and Children's Services. I would love to know from each of you if you could just tell us a little bit about the work that you do in the community and the people that you support. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the introduction, Adam. I'm Dr. Tamika Minor. I am a certified rehabilitation counselor. My education, my master's and my doctorate are in rehabilitation counseling. And I get a lot of what is that exactly? So rehabilitation counselors, we work with persons with all types of disabilities, from physical disabilities, mental health, substance use. And my population that I work with is transition age youth. I am an academic. So I'm the assistant professor and also the clinical coordinator and program director for the master's in clinical mental health program at um, Rutgers University. That's fabulous. Thanks, Tamika. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Tamika. Uh, Jen, if you would love to share with the community what it is that you do. Yeah, shalom. Thank you so much, Adam and Rose, for having me. My name is Jen Airy, and I work as a social worker at the Rowan Integrated Special Needs Center, or RISEN Center. Um, We are a primary care practice, so we're the doctors you go to when you have the sniffles or you need a physical. And we focus primarily on individuals with complex special health care needs. So individuals with disabilities are the only patients that we see here and their caregivers. So um, my role here as a social worker includes helping um, improve access to care, finding needed resources in the community and, and access to services. I also help with getting those necessary medical equipment that a lot of our, our families and patients need, um, including things like wheelchairs, um, incontinence products, Products, uh, walkers, things like that. Um, and also I provide a lot of um, psychotherapy to individuals with disabilities as well as their caregivers. So I do a lot of caregiver support with their families um, as a mom to two boys with autism. My oldest is almost 21, uh, which is quite a milestone coming up. And my youngest is 18 and he's graduating high school this year. Um, but I, I like to think I know a little, at least a little bit from my two children's uh, journey through um, having autism. And, you know, and I have a real connection to our caregivers and providing support to them, um, you know, and as well as, as their loved ones. So a lot of different things that I do here. Um, I'm kind of known as the transition expert in our office. Um, so a lot of our our um, young folks, young adults come to us and I help them get connected to services, help with guardianship um, and understanding sort of what happens next after they graduate from their 18 to 21 program. Amazing. Jen, thank you for sharing that and also sharing more about your personal story as well. And I can't wait for us later in this episode to talk a little bit more about caregiver support as well. Um, Oriel, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Uh, thank you, Adam and Rose. So I am Oriel Weinberg, the Director of Disability Services at Samost Jewish Family and Children's Services in Southern New Jersey. We have an array of programming based off of doing face-to-face interactions with people with disabilities, mostly intellectual disabilities, but we also assist those with traumatic brain injuries and physical disabilities. A lot of our programs are geared towards assisting them with 
increasing independence in their lives, whether that's uh, through our day program and learning daily life skills, supported employment. We also have community-based supports, which is additional support, whether it's social, recreational, or based on employment. And we have social and recreational programming for people who want to get together, get out in the community, hang out together, and hang out with others in the community and do fun activities. So we service three counties nearby, Camden, Burlington, and Gloucester, although we are always amenable towards uh, meeting people from outside of those areas. And uh, we have a great relationship with uh, Adam, actually, and Rose when it comes to providing uh, accessibility services and advocacy throughout the community. So uh, a lot of what we do in JFCS in general is about uh, directly serving as many people as possible nearby in, in all those categories and a lot more. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I am so honored to have all of you here as guests. Major thank you to Adam for organizing this get together. Um, as you guys are aware, the major topic of this episode is mental health. Um, we are in February, which is a month that challenges a lot of people. And from your perspectives, I'm wondering what are some of the biggest barriers for individuals with disabilities when it comes to accessing mental health services and other services that benefit their well-being? Um, does anyone feel like they want to jump in first? Sure, I'll jump in because um, this is a, a lot of it. A lot of my work, I do a lot of research in um, diversity and in, um, equity and inclusion and also working with TAY, it's a lot of barriers. Also, with any person with disabilities, we see barriers, but I see attitudinal barriers as the hugest barrier for persons with disabilities of going to get mental health care. Um, one is the stigma, and I'm going to be a little specific. So in my time, I worked a lot with um, transition age youth with visual impairments, and it was, you know, only the emphasis on their visual impairment that, you know, they don't suffer from depression. They don't have these type of issues, even though they're adolescents, they're going through that tough time in life. And the biggest thing that I had is working with that population and seeing the amount of substance use, because we do see substance use and mental illness do go hand in hand as we study co-occurring disorders. And it was the, the stigma or the attitude that they're not using substances. Their friends are not giving them substances or talking about substances. Why not? You know, they're people and teenagers, just like you and I have been or or, or, or their peers are. So why not? And also the attitudinal and cultural barriers that we see. Who's going to know that I'm discussing about mental health with someone? Is it going to be spread all over town, especially when you see in like small rural areas? And I say that also from experience because I'm from a small rural area where everybody knows everyone. And also, you know, worked in a small town and worked with vocational rehab counselors in small counties where everyone did know any everyone. So it's that stigma of is someone going to see me there? When you look at other cultures, specifically for black culture, it may be we don't talk about these things outside of this house. Um, spiritual reasons also that if you're having these um, issues, then you, you know, take it to church, take it to your spiritual leader. You don't talk to these outside of the house. The attitudinal barriers of law enforcement may get into this. Child protective services may get into this. I see so 
much of that in working with um, especially culturally diverse um, populations, that that attitudinal barrier, also the fact of these services just really aren't available in certain areas that we see in um, a low income or poverty stricken um, areas is what we call also medically underserved areas that they may not be the umbrella term of behavioral health professionals, you know, locally that can be accessible through um, public transportation. So for example, as Jen discussed the services that they have at the, at the center where she is, it's amazing because it's primary care because where do people mostly go when they're having an issue? They're primary care doctors. So that's why I'm, I'm glad to meet you, Jen, as a social worker, as we talk about pro- interprofessional care and having persons with disabilities have the accessibility to talk with the behavioral health professional at their primary care facility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to piggyback off of what Tamika said so so perfectly there um, and expand on it a little bit more in that um, additional barriers as far as attitudinal include things like the misunderstanding that people who don't have verbal communication can have disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar. Um, These actually very much are part of that community, just like the rest of the population who might not necessarily have a similar disability. Um, And a lot of people have the attitude or the misunderstanding that people that don't have verbal communication don't have psychiatric needs, period. Um, And again, that is not true. And tying off of that is the belief that um, things are behavioral versus psychiatric. And so a lot of times when an individual is experiencing psychiatric needs, it's written off as behavioral. Oh, they just need an ABA therapist. Oh, they just need someone to, you know, give them a swat on the backside or, or whatever the, you know, they just need to be grounded. And that's not helpful. That's not a, not a appropriate way to handle somebody who needs psychiatric care. Um, they need quality, quality and competent individuals who are familiar with individuals with disabilities to manage their psychiatric needs. Um, But on the flip side of that, you can get behaviors and aggression um, is one of those behaviors that we see very often because of unmet medical needs. Um, Individuals who are experiencing chronic pain because of a medical condition and can't tell you about it are often mislabeled as being um, as being, you know, having psychosis and are put on antipsychotics. And that's not appropriate. If someone has I'll give you a real example If someone who came to us with their esophagus was corroded because of the amount of reflux that they were having. They were in tremendous amounts of pain and were on high levels of antipsychotic medication. And when they came to our providers, had a very competent and quality healthcare examination, were put on medications to treat their condition, and that pain started to go away, guess what? The behaviors went away too. And so it, it's, it's very much a connected thing with our individuals with disability because if we can't manage their pain, if we can't manage their care, it's oftentimes mislabeled and written off. And we need that c- compassion, that empathy, that understanding, and we need access to providers. And one of the biggest barriers is insurance. 
Um, many, many, many people with disabilities use Medicaid and cannot afford to pay out of pocket and quality psychiatric care just really isn't available or available in enough quantity to meet everyone's needs because uh, many providers who provide psychiatry do not accept insurance and they definitely don't take Medicaid. Um, so that's a huge barrier for, for our families and for individuals with disabilities. I'm going to piggyback on you on what you just said. Um, I, and it's funny because uh, I think for all of us, this is a topic that could go on all day, uh, truly all day. There are so many ways to, to delve into it. But um, because, you know, you addressed medical and to make you're addressing personal attitude about it. Uh, I think that a big portion of it is also uh, their families and their, their guardians and, and uh, navigating that. So we have it on both ends. We have it from the families and we also have it from providers that are giving them services. And sometimes there's a level of mistrust on both sides. And we could be the best agency doing the best work we can at all times. And they could be the best family giving the best care to their child at all times. But when it comes to methods for handling certain circumstances or assisting whoever the person is with whatever they're dealing with from a mental health perspective, there will be differences and different approaches. And a lot of times that leads to not utilizing each other in ways that would be very valuable. Providers sometimes could really benefit from listening to what care, what caregivers, guardians, family are saying about what they believe is best for their child and also just in general for the environment and whatever program that we are providing. And on the other hand, we have it the other way where we might be saying we are seeing a clear sign, you know, somebody who comes in with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but their family has had some level of success, not relying on uh, psychotropics, but instead relying on um, a more holistic approach, uh, such as a diet where uh, you're gluten free and you're casein free and a couple of other things, which is, you know, there's a discussion about whether that works for somebody who's dealing with bipolar disorder. And so, if they're doing really well at home for that bit that that they've been trying this uh, diet, and then they come to us and we see something completely different as providers who are very much caring both about them and those around us, how do we handle it? So having those conversations can be really tough. And a lot of times it leads to not really getting very far because you're just seeing differences in the person. So a, a lot of times it's about the perspective based off of where they are makes it complicated, right? Where they are at the doctors, not who, you know, what you're going to see as their family is not what you're going to see as a provider. So not being able to see on the same wavelength is something I see very often amongst all the communities. And on Oriel, I, I find um, in my experience, and I'm sure you as well, that a lot of times um, as providers, sometimes we need to remind ourselves and it's important to, to keep in mind that um, our clients and the individuals that we work with and the people that we serve um, have disabilities sometimes for a reason. Um, oftentimes there's a genetic component to their, their, um, their needs and that can oftentimes influence or affect their parents and caregivers. So not only 
is the the individual that we're serving, um, you know, dealing with their own challenges, but oftentimes their caregiver is as well. They may not have, say, autism, for example, but they may have perhaps a learning disability. They may have some anxiety um, or other things going on. And certainly with um, issues like bipolar and schizophrenia, there's definitely an inherited component or a tendency within the family to have um, a number of individuals with those conditions. So as providers, it's so important for us to sit, step back and say, okay, we do need to meet those people where they are and where are those parents and, and do they have enough spoons in the drawer to, to accomplish the tasks that we're asking of them and how can we better support them? Yeah, there's a major portion that's just empathy. Yeah. Now, I do feel the need to interject um, to provide some context. My name is Rose. I'm an occupational therapist. Um, and when it comes to the gluten-free, casein-free diet, I do, this is something I've studied closely. There's a lot of evidence against it and a lot of concerns. Um, so we need to make sure that we're not promoting anything that's not evidence-based. But we can get into that later. Sorry about that, folks. It's, it's a big one. It's a big one because families just want to do what's best for their kids. And we hear so many things of like, let's try this, let's try that. And we need to be able to build relationships between our patients and our providers so that we can really dive down into the evidence and find solutions that work. You said that, Rose. I wanted to come because I, I wanted to actually come and chime in to both of Jen and Oriel about psychoeducation. It's very important, which is we know is an evidence-based practice, is making sure our clients, and especially working with youth, that parents are given that psychoeducation that they really need, they can, you know, on an individual basis, on a group basis, to also not only educate them, but help them to be their child's best advocate. And I mean, no one knows your child better than you, but to be the best advocate and also to help that client advocate for themselves. Absolutely. Uh, I 100% agree, Rose, by the way, just in case that wasn't clear. Um, I'm in, I'm in full agreement. Um, I, I, you know, one of the struggles with uh, talking about real life scenarios is obviously we have uh, a lot of uh, respect for HIPAA and trying to be careful with those things. But obviously we're coming from real life situations here. I'm in complete agreement, though, in terms of not wanting information to come off as this is a recommendation. Uh, it was an example to give in terms of differences of approaches that have been experienced. And that is it. Fabulous. If I may jump in for a second and ask you guys, because um, I am the the odd man out here, if you will, I am not a practitioner, um, but as a former, you know, special education teacher, former educator, case manager, program coordinator, um, I would love to know from each of your perspectives of, you know, what you think we as a society as a whole could do better in this space. Um, personally, what I felt I could do and bring to the table for the community as I recently became certified in youth mental health first aid and felt like that was a tangible way for myself to be more aware of the mental health uh, needs of our community and know that I'm not a practitioner, but can be providing best practices to ensure that people know how to receive care or how to access care. Um, so I'm wondering from your perspectives, each of you, um, Rose included, what do you think are ways that, that, that we as a group, as a community can do better in assuring that there's greater equity um, in receiving care and access to? Uh, I could uh, start on something small and then I'll let others chime in. Um, I mean, literally this has been my life. So to talk about this stuff is an all day event, but um, 
I I would say from a very small point, because we deal with employability, we deal with trying to give access for individuals who have particular needs to be able to be successful in the workplace. Um, We have both offered and we've been asked to assist um, different work sites with accommodating those needs more often. Uh, We recently had a conversation uh, with a company that recognized on their own, which is very healthy, that they, you know, they did a self-assessment and they realized that they really don't have, they, they're not reaching where they want to be in terms of accessibility and, and providing real equal opportunity. And so they were asking if there was a way to help them create an environment where that would be something they could, the people there that are the leaders could get more involved and feel a little more comfortable and, and, and start understanding where they need to work on things. So a lot of what we do here is we encourage uh, employers to come see what we do. And also sometimes to let us come to their sites with individuals that we're doing assessments with, because it's a very easy way for them to see, this is somebody who's looking to gain employment, we're working with them on figuring out where their skills and where their passion is best laid out. And by going to a work site and working with them one-on-one, they feel comfortable. And they also see, oh, this is a person who's working a job and has skill sets, uh, may need additional assistance, but it's not with, you know, it's within the realm. So providing access to for people to see those things, to observe those things, and having people and inviting companies to come to us and see what we do and see our pre-vocational programs to see how they are doing with those skills that we're assisting them with, it helps bridge the gap. So that's a lot of what we encourage is seeing with seeing with your own eyes, being involved some way, somehow with having people who are dealing with different ability issues be within your workplace. Absolutely. And um, I think for myself, um, some of the challenges that we run into and and ways to kind of creatively address them um, include that um, this population, you know, there's a saying, if you if you know someone with autism or, you know, one person with autism, you know, one person with autism. Everyone is an individual. And I can't stress that enough. And so when approaching someone's mental health, you need to have an individual approach. Um, You need to get to know that individual, know their passions, their strengths, what what motivates them. Oftentimes, traditional talk therapy is not successful. People with disabilities tend to be very concrete thinkers, um, and it's very hard for them to visualize more abstract concepts that you might be traditionally used to using in in talk therapy. And so developing alternative modalities, alternative treatments um, that can approach the individual where they're at and on a level that they can access is hugely, hugely important. And, um, you know, and for myself, um, I look at doing things like, um, you know, I do hands-on concrete learning. Um, I draw a lot of pictures or we look at pictures. That's helpful. Um, I do a lot of work in identifying emotions. Um, individuals with autism, um, do struggle with being able to name their emotions. It's actually a condition called alexithymia. 
And um, that can be really problematic when you're trying to help somebody with their feelings and they can't put to words what those feelings exactly are. So we do a lot of feelings work. Um, I do a lot of acupressure, aromatherapy and different, you know, different other modalities that actually have been shown to be successful um, with uh, people with disabilities who, you know, more traditional, perhaps talk therapy approaches don't work as well. I kind of want to go on what you said, Oreo, about looking at um, employability and access to those things. And one thing that I always say is little, I think, best kept secret. Every state has a office of vocational rehabilitation. We help persons with disabilities find what their passions are, help them get employed and help them maintain employment. I have so, well, as I said, like in the beginning, I'm always asked, what is a rehabilitation counselor? What are we do? We are specifically trained to work with persons with all disabilities and to know the functional limitations of their disability, which makes us, you would think, a very hot commodity, but people really don't know that every state has an office of vocational rehabilitation that has amazing services, that even works with um, persons as young as 14 and looking at pre-ETS at this moment. So I think it's a, a big thing, especially as I advocate for my profession and also for clients, is that it's the best kept secret that every state has is looking at that you have a a office of vocational rehabilitation and also of, of little things that we can do to help persons with disabilities and help anyone with their mental illness and a mental health and well-being and my students will tell you that I, I say this to them all the time social media is not your therapist you cannot believe everything that's out there even as Rose kind of said to us you know everything that comes through I get students who are being trained to be counselors that come through and I and I say you can't believe everything you see your TikTok ter- therapist says and working with youth with such an impressionable age they do believe these things a lot so it's really also of us to debunk all of this also there's so many organizations that are you know free that offer so many trainings such as NAMI that has specialized um, components for kids, teens, youth, um, older persons as well. Camden County has an office of mental health and substance use. At my university, we always have certain types of trainings, especially with our Integrated Employment Institute, that looks at not just in um, employer strategies and things for those who are looking to be employed and also employers themselves, but also techniques that are based in evidence-based practices. So motivational interviewing is a big one that we see right now. Um, A lot of DBT, CBT, all of those and how you can integrate those into the work setting and also things you can do for yourself for your own wellness. So I think it's really important as practitioners that we make sure that we have these resources on hand that we're able to give out to our clients and also to like the general public. I know people talk to me and they're like, Oh my gosh, she's going to talk about something about mental health. Well, if you bring it up, that's kind of what I do. Um, of course, but there's so many organizations to 
to just be a part of. And many of them is, you know, on a click of our smartphones and a click of our laptops that we can look for other than social media. I, I want to put that out there. And also I want to say to make sure that we are welcoming from a diversity point of view also. Are our offices welcome welcoming? Are the information that we seem welcoming that are going not just in a Eurocentric monoclinic um, way, but to speak to our population? And that goes beyond the cultural competency that we've learned as practitioners, but also now to practice cultural humility, which is the next step that we need for our clients. Tamika, can we be friends? <laughs> I'll be at Rutgers on Friday. I'll reach out. Uh, Adam, do you want to mention the hackathon? I appreciate that. Oriel, why don't why don't you go ahead and, and discuss that? Because I think um you your program participants were going to be, you know, an integral part of that conversation. So I'd love for you to share that. Okay. I, I just because it, it 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 comes to the it it's about introducing youth to, you know people who are dealing with disabilities in a more real setting. Uh, obviously, we love when people uh, volunteer. So once in a while, you'll get um, teenagers who are specifically looking to build up their high school resume, so to speak, and they'll come to volunteer and do work within you know the community that we provide services for. However, when there are opportunities for where a school works with us to do it on a much larger scale it's it's a it's an amazing accomplishment because then you're it's a um what what's the word uh it's a it's a system change right it's, a, it's introduction on a system level which is a, a much bigger deal so we were very lucky that uh we we had a um i don't know who arranged it per se but uh was it you directly <laughs> Well, Adam. so um, I was working yeah. with our Kelman Brown Academy, which, um, you know, I think many of us are, are familiar with. It's our community's uh, Hebrew day school. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity to meet with the teachers and administration um, who, as COVID is now something that we're living with, um, they wanted to get back to having their community STEM lab be used in a space that the community could benefit from. And so we began our conversations early in the fall about what would an accessibility hackathon look like for their STEM lab that has 3D printers. Um, and so it was a wonderful opportunity to, to pair middle school students um, with various agencies of our Federation family who work with individuals with disabilities who could benefit from assistive technology and devices in their everyday part of their world. Um, and so to have middle school students have the opportunity to interview members of our community with disabilities, to hear about what their needs were and how they could help be change makers to solve a problem for them, I thought was really uh, a really special opportunity for us. Um, and so that's that's where Oriel came in to, to team up and match with some of his program participants. Um, and I think it was a really beautiful, beautiful thing that we got to experience. Yeah, I don't know if Adam, if, if, if you're going to say this or Rose is going to say this, but people listening to the podcast for the first time, just getting into it, need to understand that Adam is a, is a mover. He's a move, a move maker. He gets people to move and to make change. That's a big, there's a reason it's called area of impact, right? Uh, he, he is making impact already. So this was a big part of it. I mean, the students did a phenomenal job, both with their interviews. They interviewed uh, the, the clients that we serve um, in our day program and from our culinary training program that we have. 
and they made amazing devices that we got to see firsthand. It was really incredible. Uh, they'll be showing it at the JCC, I believe, this upcoming Sunday. Um, and we're we're very excited. Yes, I'm we're gonna have so a beautiful. Dis- yeah, we're gonna have a beautiful display. I know. Well, you have a special connection to the school too, um, <laughs> as does Oriel. <laughs> um, My children go there. Mine does too. My son. Oh, how about that? Okay. What grade is he in? Fifth. And he came home so excited to tell me all about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I had heard Adam, I, when I sent you a meeting or something, you're like, I'm going to the hackathon. That's all that he told me. He <laughs> was. So my son came home and told me all about it. And he was so excited. And so was I. Well, and you know what I think is so magical about this opportunity is I think, it, you know, maybe I've answered my own question to a degree uh, from a few moments ago, is that maybe this is the way we make change, right? Is by having the youth of our community be invested into concepts and to to have the ability, as as Jen was saying, these these tangible moments, you know, um, it's very hard for our students today to think beyond themselves. And so when they've spent this time devoted to another individual in our community, um, this is where I see change really taking place. Because this will be something I think that your children will remember having done, um, and it will be something that that's imprinted on both their mind and their heart. Uh, here at Roan, we're actually doing something similar as well, but at a at more of a graduate school level. Um, the Risen Center, we have uh, interns. Uh, or not, I'm sorry, not interns, residents. Um, uh, you know, doctoral candidates. You know, who are completing their residency. Uh, they actually work with our patients, and they do rotations here through Risen, which is super exciting because you're breaking down those barriers, you're breaking down stigma, and you're creating familiarity and comfort levels uh, with these future, you know, future doctors that are going out into the communities that they're going to serve. They're going to go across the country, across the world world, wherever they wind up being, and they're going to take that familiarity and that comfort with them and hopefully um, increase access for care for people with disabilities, you know, in the medical fields, which is, which is tremendously exciting for us. I love it. Um, It's so great to hear all of these awesome things. Now, given that I am an occupational therapist working with primarily older adults, I do want to shed some light on something that a lot of our older adults with disabilities face, which is a concept known as occupational deprivation. A lot of people can't, you know, we are a work first state or employment first, and we love that. But in some cases, working just isn't accessible to people. And we need to make sure that these people are finding meaning and value in their daily existence because sometimes being alive is enough. So one of the reasons I'm a big fan of my practice, occupational therapy, is we get to come in and meet people where they are and help them find ways to meaningfully use their time and space to serve their well-being and really piggyback off a lot of the successes that you guys have all shared. Um, This was a great conversation. I want to shift focus just a little bit. You know, we are all actively engaged in this world. So I want to talk a little bit about caregiver burnout, caregiver strain, and how practitioners and parents and siblings can take care of themselves and what resources are available to these groups so that we can provide the best support after our own cups are full. This is something I talk about a lot with my students in just self-care, caregiver burnout, compassion fatigue, 
all of those type of things is just one thing that I always say is to find one hour a day to do something that you love, whatever that may be. Also making sure that in that one hour, the boundaries that you have set are very, very, you keep them, you maintain them. It's very easy to set a boundary but it's very hard to keep them up because as soon as one thing or someone crosses it, it's kind of over a bit. So I always talk to my students to also talk to their clients and their clients' caregivers about practicing that little bit of self-care. Self-care doesn't always have to be bubble baths and aromatherapy. It can be something that you enjoy doing. And if you can get that done for an hour a day and gradually build upon that, I think that's a good way to start your foundation of self-care. Also getting all those things, as I say, the ABCs of self-care in your self-care toolbox. If that's a positive affirmation that you say to yourself today, you know, we got through today is a big accomplishment to say when you're, um, when you have a loved one that has a disability, um, lean on your support. It's not, it's okay to have support. It takes a village. It really does. Don't be embarrassed to lean on the support systems that you have in, in place, making sure that you have those support systems in place. I know a big thing that I have a lot of my students discuss is not having the accessibility of respite care. Um, that is something that's very important. So finding those um, services, if they are out there, and I, I know it, and, and that may come from networking a lot. A lot of my students find services for caregivers really through networking, from knowing someone who knowing someone who knowing someone, especially so much in group settings. But I say with just starting with that foundation of that little bit of self-care of Finding one hour a day to do what you love just to take that that breath of fresh air. I would, you know, bear in mind that my um, my experience, I was a direct support provider or professional, depending on what state you're in, um, for almost 10 years before taking on other positions. And um, so a lot of what I would express towards how a caregiver could kind of work on, on these things is actually coming from the viewpoint of somebody who's been in the field in a provider space. But I would say that a lot, a lot of what uh, I experienced both from talking to parents and from personally being in the job is until you can truly look at the person that you are caring for and see them and just them and take yourself out of the picture, until you can, until you've got that really down pat, and that's about knowing them to the T as much as possible, truly, truly paying attention to them day in and day out, even knowing, just observing somebody who is on the spectrum, yourself stimming when it comes out, paying attention to those small little things really helps you not take things personally when they go a certain way. So until you've got that down pat, one of the best things you can do is just keep reminding yourself, especially when you're feeling that aggravation come out because something is 
is, you know, is out of your control, that it is not personal. Even if everything they're telling you is that it's personal, still taking yourself out to say this is not personal. It's a it's a it's a tough work, and it's not something that you're going to get uh, overnight. And I completely agree with Tamika in terms of as much self care as possible. But learning the ins and the outs of the person you are caring for is a big deal. And and uh, as a parent, I can say that, uh, you know, I pay attention to my kids based off of keeping them alive and getting them through the day. But then there are other times where I'm paying attention to them, where I'm just observing them and I'm just paying attention to the quirks and the this because they're growing and changing at a rate I can't keep up with. And so a lot of the time that's spent just observing uh, and, 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 and seeing what is setting them off before they even get to the set off point where you can start seeing that, okay, when they get to a certain location, their eyes start shifting or they start looking more at me than at anybody else. Those are, you know, the precursors to bigger things. It, it, it becomes a lot easier to be proactive so that even before you get to that place, that's going to be tougher than to deal with. You've created a plan with them. You know, uh, if you need to go to the mall to, because they need clothing and they do not like being in the mall, but they don't mind being in the clothing store, creating a system with them where they get to listen to their music on headphones or just have headphones on or whatever it is and, and letting them know beforehand, we're going to be in the mall for 2.5 minutes and then we will be in the clothing store. And then when you're on in the hallway, I'm breaking it down too much, but basically when you can be as proactive as possible because you know them so well, 99% of your problems go away because you feel like you are capable of helping them. And then if they start having struggles, it's not personal because you've been prepared for this moment. So lots of paying attention, observation, and lots of self-care and not, and doing your really absolute best to not take it personally. Yes. Now, before I turn this over to Jen, because I know you have a lot of great resources for us, you know, I want to frame it as, you know, from the sibling perspective, because I have a lot of peers with siblings with, you know, intense IDD when they're like, you know, why do I have to take on this burden of being so proactive about my sibling or like dealing with the weight of that? What resources are out there for them and those parents who are just feeling so overwhelmed by that, those extra responsibilities? Uh, before you do get to Jen, I just wanted to quickly say that something that we have done here and are looking to uh, bring up again, I think Adam knows where I'm going with this, is we had a great program that was run by our uh, day, day program supervisor, actually, who is also an occupational therapist called Sib Shops, uh, which is a very recognized program. It's really great what they do. Um, so as of right now, since uh, I've been on board, because I, I joined in June, we have not uh, set it up yet, but the goal very much is to bring it back. And it is a forum for siblings to come in for exactly that reason, to, to have these conversations and, and kind of figure out ways to not to just to vent it out and express about it, but help them come up with tools to develop those relationships that can be difficult. Um, I'd like to to jump in here in the conversation um, and kind of go back to this conversation of about caregiver support, because I feel like that's something that we excel at here at the Risen Center um, and that I have a lot of experience with as as a parent to, to, to children with autism. 
Um, it can be an incredibly lonely and isolating experience. Um, oftentimes, um, caregivers, we're, we're not in, you know, we stop getting those invitations to, to family events and, you know, your child, child's birthday parties and, and things like that. And it can feel, um, you can feel very overwhelming and like you don't know where to go. Um, so it's very important to find those networks, find those um, support systems and those uh, people who, who are going to be there for you and in your corner. Um, you know, a lot of our of, of moms and other caregivers, they rely on Facebook. There's some very dynamic and active groups of which uh, the Jewish Federation manages one that's really excellent that I encourage people to check out. Um, and, uh, you know, finding that peer support can be hugely empowering and helpful. But um, another area where caregiver support is so important is you need to make sure that your medical needs are being met and not just medical, but also your behavioral health needs, because so often um, when I'm explaining the situation, like if, if someone is dealing with a child with extreme levels of, of aggression and it's really just such a you know difficult situation that they're in, um, you know, it's it's really almost incomprehensible for other people unless you've lived through it. And um, helping the helping these parents and caregivers get access to their own medical care and to help them access behavioral health care so that they can deal with the trauma of what they're experiencing, deal with their PTSD um, and whatever other issues that they might be, you know, encountering as caregivers that are so so you know important that we address. Um, it's important that. They, that we give them permission or help them understand that they have permission to take care of themselves too. And it's not taking away from the care that they're giving their child, that it's okay to take an hour and go see your doctor and get your mammogram, get your blood work done, go see a therapist. You need to take care of yourself. It is so important because your child is not going to be successful in the community unless you are able to be successful in the community. And that includes your own health care. So those twinges that you've been putting off, that little, that little heart palpitation or those headaches you've been getting or those twinges, get those checked out before they become a bigger problem. And that later impact, not just yourself, but your whole family and the goals that you have for your child and the care that you want to give them. I can't stress that enough that your own care, give yourself permission to, to take care of yourself. And um, in addition to that, I, I want to also say that um, seek out people who can help teach you ways to help your child and help yourself learn coping skills, learn mindfulness. I'm not just talking about do yoga. Everybody says, oh, go do yoga and deep breathing. Actually, deep breathing is actually a really good thing. I'm just going to throw that out there. But learn mindfulness, learn meditation, learn um, you know whatever it is that fills your bucket and helps you relax. Prayer is hugely impactful. Having that resiliency and that, that communion with your spirituality can be incredibly helpful and a huge source of resilience for, for our family. So I encourage you to seek that out if that is something that you're drawn to. Um, I also encourage, you know, that psychoeducation that was mentioned earlier in the conversation, that is so important as well, because there are things as parents that we can do that can actually help your child regulate their behaviors. Co-regulation is so important. And what that means is think of your child like a mirror. And so where whatever energy that you're putting out, they're going to reflect back to you. So if you're really escalated and your tone is really elevated, you might be shouting, things might be, you know, sad, and that's where your child's going to meet you at. 
But if you start from a place of calmness and strength, then your child is going to be able to better help themselves stay regulated. And so learning techniques, learning things like this can be incredibly helpful and empowering uh, for yourself and for your child. And you'll find that your family dynamic and your situation is only going to improve and just giving yourself permission to take care of yourself. I just want to throw in one more time that Tamika is 100% correct. Not throw in. I want to throw in. I want to copy what Tamika said. There are so many services, and sometimes the hardest part is finding the services. It's a big deal. I, I know that's something that Adam is heavily invested in as well, is being able to find those services. I mean, and because a case in point, Jen, based off of what you were saying before, is that, you know, there is respite. There's self-hired respite. And they have, I know they have it for definitely until the age of 21, and there's respite for adults. But this is a scenario where sometimes people are really uncomfortable asking for help from other family or neighbors or friends because they feel like they've worn them out a little bit, right? Or or they just are concerned that it will something will go wrong or there'll be a feeling about something that happens and they don't have control over all these things. And truly, they will push off doing exactly what you were saying, taking care of themselves. At the self-hired respite, and this is something that is uh, paid for through Medicaid, um, if you know, which is a whole other conversation. But um, if they are able to access it, it's an opportunity to pay those people in your life to do this. Just something to make it feel a little less like you're doing a they're doing a big favor. So it takes a little bit of the stigma away, where they will get paid by uh, by Medicaid to hang out with your child, which they would do out of love. But it, it gives you a little bit less, a little more comfort to actually take those moments to take care of yourself. So I strongly recommend people look it up so they can see the best way to access it. Oriana, I appreciate that. And I wanted to also, Jen, you had mentioned, so I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it now. Um, but yeah, a big piece of this, right, is is about leaning on your community as well for support, knowing that there are individuals, families, caretakers, loved ones that have been through this before. And I think one thing I often find the common thread is that everybody has a story to share and we can all learn from that. Um, and so two of the spaces at the Federation that we have that, that Jen and I were a big part of forming back in 2015 together um, was our Jewish Abilities Alliance Network. So we have our JAA website and it's a resource you can find on our Federation website. And we also have a closed support group um, Facebook page called the Special Needs Coalition. Um, which has over 2,000 members in it where we get, you know, community members near and far that post questions, ask for support, provide different programming opportunities. And so it's a great space to be able to come together as a community uh, to know that we're not alone in, in these spaces. I love it. Um, if it's okay with you, Adam, I think I'm going to shift into our next question, um, especially as we're, wow, already approaching an hour, which is amazing. Um, you know, this is hard work. So as individuals, can you just, in a couple sentences, give us some insight as to what makes you passionate and keeps you motivated to make a difference for the disabled community? Whoever wants to start first can jump in. Um, I'd love to jump in. Um, obviously, one of my biggest sources of passion are my two children. Um, I tell people so often that the journey to becoming a special needs parent was a really hard one. Um, you know, if you imagine in your in your mind's eye, you know, if you happen to be a parent, you think about when you bring that new baby home, you have 
literally a trash bag full of resources and full of samples and business cards and pediatricians and, you know, all these different things you're bringing home and you almost have, you know, sometimes the, you know, almost too much. And I remember the day that I was told that the doctor thought my child had autism. It was his primary care doctor. And and she told me this and I looked at her and I said, what's next? And she said, I don't know. And that was a really difficult place to be. And I like to take that feeling that I had in that moment. And that has very much driven my whole purpose in becoming a social work, social worker and in helping people with disabilities, because I've been that parent. I am that parent. And I really want to treat other families and, and people with disabilities the way that I wish um, I had experienced and I, the way I wish that my children had experienced when we were, we were first having this journey together. Um, and that's where my passion comes from. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, Tamika, do you want to hop on in? Sure. So I, I can, I guess, because I'm not like directly in the field, I say like field adjacent. I'm um, <laughs> academic that's, you know, in the ivory tower. My passion comes from educating and training the next generation of counselors. Every student that has, I've had in my class. I, I do look at them, you know, as my own, even though, you know, some of them are non-traditional and older than me, but to take not just what I have learned from education, but also my experience to instill that in them fuels me every day to go into my classroom. Also, the passion that I have for this field of rehabilitation counseling, that I talk to hundreds of agencies to take our students on as interns because I didn't I didn't wake up one day and say I want to be a rehabilitation counselor because honestly I didn't know what that was. <laughs> My passion that led me to this field was working with children with disabilities and to also see that not just their disabilities but their home lives. I started out working um in undergrad in a Title I school in a neighborhood that was in a very in actually in a right across the street from a housing project to see those children deal with gun violence, drug abuse, all types of things. Many of them had been, you know, sexually assaulted, verbally assaulted, and to see how that also was a challenge in addition to their disability. I wanted to work with them and educate and train those that could give them the best services ever because they weren't afforded that. And so every day when I walk into my classroom, I make sh I, I talk so much about culture, not just race and ethnicity, because you people are being denied services because of their income, because of their gender, because of who they love. So I want to make sure that I educate my students to give the best care that they can in a cultural humility lens. And that fuels me every day. I love that. Oriel? Um, gosh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a long and complicated path. So there, there are too many answers to give in one podcast, but um, I don't have, uh, I don't have lifelong experience being around someone with um, intellectual disabilities, uh, maybe some 
you know, maybe some other struggles in life, but nothing like that. I came to this line of work when I was 18 years old and had zero direction and very low level of confidence and self-confidence, just needing a job. Um, but I would say that there was, from being in that place and being in a job where you don't have a choice but to, but to gather your resources together and figure it out and figure it out quick, um, it was the most massive life adjustment I could have experienced, and I didn't have any control over it if I was going to work there. So it gave me a sense of direction and, and a place to put any energy I had in one spot. But what really turned it from being just a job to a life experience was having, I don't know, I don't know about any of you, but for me, if I ever have a moment where something clicks in and it all makes sense, it's, it's, it's spiritual. So, you know, working with, uh, I worked in a group residence for um, children, for boys and young teenagers uh, who had uh, really, really strong uh, needs. And um, we're dealing with uh, all sorts of struggles when it came to uh, regulating themselves and, and understanding what's going on and physical disabilities as well. So it was not an easy place to work, but there was a, probably, a, there were many moments, but there was definitely an initial moment where I was working with a young man who was very, who was struggling very strongly with something and he was having a very difficult time and he could not express himself. He's not verbal. And all of a sudden, one day, I just stopped taking him personally, as I mentioned before, which is why that was my message. And I just paid attention. And all of a sudden, something clicked in. Uh, and it was massive. It was a game changer. And it also turned out that a lot of the things he was dealing with were because of a, a very major medical issue. And his, his life was very much in danger. And fortunately, they caught it. I didn't catch it. It wasn't me that caught it or anything. But, but it was... Um, it was such a tangible, easy moment to say, wow, all of a sudden I see you. And, and the interactions between, between us were totally different. It went immediately from, I'm trying to understand you and help you. Why don't you get that? To we're in this together and I understand you. And our relationship was, was you know, it was just completely different. And it was such a moment of, wow, do people not know they can have this? This is the best, this, this is the best for both of us. I gained something from it. It's selfish, but also it's, if you can get past that hump and there's a hump for everyone, if you can get past that hump, there is a very nice horizon and there'll be other ones, but if you can get over that one, it's a big deal. So ever since then, just any, any training I do, any conversation I have, anytime I'm talking to a parent or we're trying a new program or service to see if we can accommodate. It's purely based off of if you can get something out of this, even one person all of a sudden has something click in and it works for them. How could you not? How could you not be invested in that? So that's where it comes from. It's just a, a very severe passion of, of people need to have these moments. They feel really good. Everyone should have access to them. I can't thank you all enough for being here with us today and sharing your experiences. Um, I, I wish everybody could see how often we all smiled and nodded in agreement with one another. It was really lovely to see, especially coming from such a varied space of learning here. Um, 
Before we end our podcast today, I wanted to ask each of you if you could share with our listeners and the community at large on if somebody wanted to reach out to you, perhaps for your mental health and well-being services, uh, Dr. Minor, perhaps somebody is interested in learning more about what it means to be a psychiatric rehabilitation professor or to get into that line of work and study. Um, Oriel, if you could share with everybody where it is that they could reach you in order to look at some of the programs and services you provide, um, we would just love for everybody to be able to hear the best way to reach out and contact you. Um, Jen, if you would love to start, then Tamika, then Oriel, please. Um, sure, absolutely. So um, our number here is 855-932-7476. That's our main number here. You can talk to you know our front desk and ask about becoming a new patient here for primary care. Um, you can also ask to talk to me. Um, that's always an option. Or you can feel free to email me. My email is ari, A-R-E-Y. Y at rowan.edu. That's R-O-W-A-N.edu. And those are probably the two best ways to, to reach our office and to reach me. Excellent. Thank you, Jen. And to remind everybody, you're at the Risen Center. Awesome. Dr. Miner, how would it be best for people to reach out to you if they wanted to, to learn more? Yes. Absolutely. I'm always welcoming persons that want to learn about rehabilitation counseling and also our program. So my best contact is email and that's tm660 at shp.ruckers.edu. That's R-U-T-G-E-R-S dot E-D-U. And also for those who are interested in interprofessional care, looking at substance abuse, and mental illness. I am the principal investigator of our SISATAR program, which is Community Intervention Services for Addictions Treatment and Recovery. And we have a website that's SISATAR, C-I-S-A-T-R dot Rutgers, R-U-T-G-E-R-S dot E-D-U. Amazing, Dr. Miner. Thank you. And Oriel, how could people reach you? Um, I used to be on call 24-7, so it's tempting to just give everyone my cell phone number. Um, <laughs> be careful. But, well, I, I think my wife appreciates that I have an office phone now. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, as, as, as everybody was saying what their, what their information is, I, I had to look mine up. I still don't know my number by heart. Um, okay, well, they can certainly reach, they should see, everybody should see our, all of our services at JFCS because they're, they're phenomenal. So I would say, first and foremost, one of the best things you could do is go to our website, which is jfcssnj.org. So that's two S's, jfcssnj.org. Under there, under uh, departments, you would be, uh, under services, you would be able to find uh, disability services. Uh, but you can also contact me directly at O Weinberg, O W E I N B E R G, at jfedsnj.org. And I found my office number. It is 856 424 1333, extension 1182. And if all that fails, just ask Adam. Amazing. Again, I wanted to thank each of you, Jen, Tamika, Uriel, and Rose for joining us today. I want to thank our listeners for listening to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. I hope you'll continue to follow our conversations. And until next time, I want to thank one more time um, our sponsor, which is the Jewish Community Foundation. Uh, they've made this episode possible, and we want to thank them for their commitment to making an impact in the disability community.